0: Well, Merry Christmas! I know it's, it's kind of early, December second. I know this weekend it kind of felt a little warm, so it's kind of like, is it really Christmas? But uh, if you're new to Sulphur Community Church, around this time of year, Christmas is a big deal, and it's kind of driven by the Foreman family that it's always been a big deal for them. Uh, but I hope that as you've kind of come around us uh, over a period of time, for those of you who have been here, like you, you, you love Christmas. This is the time where we get. To focus our attention intentionally throughout this whole series as, um, of, of days leading up to the day of December 25th. We get to meditate on Jesus Christ coming in the form of a baby. God in flesh. God with us. Emmanuel. And so I know things are are crazy busy this time of year. Like everybody's trying to schedule things. Like I know my family. It's like, okay, how soon can we schedule our family get together before y'all have to go to other families? So in October, like, hey, what are y'all doing for Christmas? Like, come on. But that's the way we end up, right? Like everybody's just running and gunning uh, all month long. What we do here on Sunday mornings, at least for you, and what we're hoping with this Advent guide is that it allows you to take time out of all that busyness, out of all the crazy chaos, and be intentional, focusing your mind, meditating on the Word of God and what he has promised and what he has fulfilled and what he has promised that will be fulfilled one day. That's Advent. Trent told you about that this morning. Advent literally means coming. And so we celebrate the first coming. That Christmas morning, when we get together with our families, and I hope you get to read the story from Scripture. I'm going to read it for you this morning, a good portion of it. But I hope you get together and focus on what God's Word says. And you celebrate the greatest gift that any of us will ever receive. I know that sounds cliche, but it is so true. And the deeper you get into God's Word, and the more you realize, like we're going to see this morning, your humble estate your despicable estate, and the fact that God looked down on you and sent his son to die for you. That's what causes the celebration. That's what leads us into worship. So when we sing this morning, we say joy to the world. I hope that's true for you as you meditate on the fulfilled promises of God, where God came down in flesh for our sake and for his glory. That's Christmas. And so I'm excited. I, I hope you are. I know that for the next four weeks, all of our preachers that are going to stand before you are going to be pumped to, to get into the gospel of Luke, and where we get to teach you from this portion of Scripture. So I hope your heart's ready. I hope you've prepared him room in your heart, as, as Hunter talked about this morning. So go ahead and open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Over the next four weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to look at four different responses, recorded by Luke, to the coming of Jesus Christ. But before we do that, I'm going to do something a little different. So if it's uncomfortable for you, just go with it. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. Close your eyes. And I want you to think about that one thing you want most in this world. I want you to see it. It could be tangible. It could be something like a a new car. It could be a a home. It could be something personal for you single people. It may be that you, man, I really want a, 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 a godly spouse. It could be a child. Maybe it's a friend, a restored relationship with somebody. It could be something spiritual. Maybe that one thing you want most in this world is salvation for somebody in your life. Maybe you want to be delivered from some sort of addiction, some sin that still haunts you. It could be a feeling. It could be that you want to be able to respond and say joy to the world. Maybe you want to feel peace. Maybe you want to feel love. Think about that one thing. Now that you have it, I want you to think about what your life will be like if you were to receive that thing. If that thing were to happen. What what will you do? How will you feel? Now think about how long you've wanted this thing. For some of you it might be days, weeks, months, for some of you it might be years. It could be longer. I want you to feel the weight of how long you've been waiting for that thing. And I want you to feel the weight of the, that strong desire that you have for that one thing. Open your eyes. That feeling you have right now, that feeling of anticipation, that defines the Christian experience with Christmas. When we think about Christmas, it is a season full of anticipation, of yearning, of a desire for something to happen. And it goes all the way back to the beginning. In Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve eat from the tree that God told them not to eat from, he pronounces a curse upon man. And he pronounces a curse upon Satan the serpent. And in the middle of that curse God gives his first promise. Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 he says, "I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." I want you to see something right there. There's a few things I want to point out to you in Genesis 3:15. First, you see the the conflict, right? He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to Satan. And then he says, and between your offspring and her offspring. One thing to notice there, typically in the Bible, you're never going to see a reference to a woman's offspring. That's significant. Think about Christmas. Where's that going, right? You have a, a virgin who is going to bear a child. It doesn't reference man's offspring, But a woman's offspring. Then you also see that it's not between Satan's offspring and her offspring. Who is it between? What does it say? It says, between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. There's a conflict between the offspring of the woman and Satan himself. That's significant. And the last thing I want you to see, and I've talked about this before, anytime I reference this first gospel, this first promise of good news, is that this word that's used for bruise, what we have translated, if you're in the ESV, it says bruise. There's two words that it can be translated into. One is bruise and one is crush. And so when you take that fact and you compare it in light of the rest of Scripture, what do we know? We know that Jesus Christ was bruised. It's a temporary thing that would be healed, right? That Satan would defeat him, that he would strike at his heel. But at the same time, when he was striking at his heel and bruised him, we know that Jesus would raise from the dead. And so his, bru- his heel was bruised, but the head of Satan was crushed in that very act. So you get this picture of a man stepping on the head of a snake. And when he does that in that very act, sure, his heel may be bruised, but that, the head will be crushed. In the middle of the curse of man— The first promise was given by God. You move forward to Genesis chapter 12. And as God is making a covenant with Abraham, he says in verses 1 through 3, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Where is this going? The covenant of Abraham would stand. God would fulfill that covenant. And so every family of the earth would be blessed through Abraham, through this covenant that he's making. And we'll see that come to light this morning in our text as we see that God remembers that promise and he fulfills it. In Isaiah chapter 9, this is a really good, this is a really good chapter if you're going to read Isaiah. I'm going to focus on a couple of verses, but Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7, this may sound familiar for you, because we, we see it a lot during Christmas time. The prophet said, for, for to us a child is born. You see the promise going through the line of David, where one day a new king would rule and he would reign and he would reign forever. His kingdom will never end and there will be peace and justice and righteousness. And as you move through the whole Old Testament, you're going to see these promises made over and over and over again, despite the rejection of God from Israel. He punishes them, yes, but then he always gives a promise for them to hold on to. Remember that I have made a covenant with your father Abraham. I have promised that there will be one coming through the line of David that will be that king. And right at the very end of the Old Testament, the last prophet in Malachi, he gives them one more promise before we transition to the New Testament. Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Hark, the herald angels sing. And the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of other destruction. And then we have 400 years after that. The people of God don't hear from him. Malachi says this, that, hey, God's going to send a prophet. He's going to send Elijah and he's going to come and he's going to turn the hearts of man back to God. And then 400 years of silence. So this morning, we're going to sing a song later, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It's my favorite. So every year I'm going to request this when it's my time to preach. But O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. When you, when you sing that song, you, you, you get a feel for the connection between that and that very first promise in Genesis 3, that promise that, that God made to Abraham in Genesis 12. What you see throughout all the prophets in the Old Testament and ending with Malachi, when you say, "Oh come, O come, Emmanuel, is this feeling of anticipation, right? What you felt for that one thing that you want most in this world, that's amplified a hundred million times worth because it's been thousands of years since that first promise was made. Oh come, O come, Oh, come, Emmanuel. We're waiting. And that leads us to our text this morning. That's where we're going in Christmas, right? Because God's promises are going to be fulfilled. As we get into Luke chapter 1, God is putting, He's starting to put the finishing touches on this plan that He started way back then and is starting to unravel right before all of mankind. This week, we're going to look at Mary's response. We're going to look at Mary's song of redemption as she responds to this promise being fulfilled. To set the the tone and and kind of the scene for the rest of our time together over the next four weeks, I'm going to read a pretty lengthy portion of this passage because they're going to kind of use that. They can refer to it throughout the coming weeks. But I want you to see all that took place leading up to where we are today when Mary responds in praise. Luke chapter 1, I'm going to start in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country, to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for this season. Father, prepare our hearts to hear your word. Focus our attention on, on your son Jesus and, and the faithfulness that you displayed in sending him here to dwell with us. Encourage us this morning. Father, strengthen us this morning. Build us up for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray that. Amen. So you see, as I was reading there, if you were, if you, I know it was a long text, but if you're able to follow along and you see what the angel declares, you get to see some of those prophecies that I read earlier for you being promised to be fulfilled in the coming, right? You saw a reference to the throne of David and how that kingdom will never end. You, you saw these promises being fulfilled, being made known like, hey, this is the moment. I know you've been waiting for thousands of years, but it's here. When Mary is told that you're going to conceive and you're going to have a child. And she's like, how how is that possible? I'm I'm a virgin. And she gets gets this promise of the the Holy Spirit's going to overshadow you and, and you're going to bear the Son of God in your womb, in your body. She goes and visits Elizabeth and she gets confirmation. As that little baby in Elizabeth's womb, filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb, leaps for joy in the presence of his Savior. And she says, Blessed are you, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Mary's response is what? What? Worship. It's praise. This is known as the Magnificat, verses 46 through 55. It's a Latin word that is re- it's the Latin translation of the very first opening lines of what she says here. But it is a song of praise. And the first thing we see in verses 46 and 47 is her expression of praise. What, what you see is this, this internal feeling of maybe some doubt, I don't know. But as Mary goes and she talks to Elizabeth, and she gets confirmation that this is going to happen, she bursts forth. What, what erupts from within her and explodes out of her lips is praise. She worships the God who will fulfill his promises, the faithful God of Israel. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God. Notice how Mary's words, are, they're speaking of what's going on inside of her. It's her soul that magnifies the Lord. To magnify something means to, to make it bigger or to make it greater. Now, when Mary says that, she is not saying that my soul is making God greater. Our students would tell you that God is the goat. He's the greatest of all time. They bring it up all the time. God is the goat. So there's nothing that Mary's soul can do to make God greater because he's already the greatest. What she's saying there is that in her soul, she now has a deeper understanding of just how great God is. It is in her soul that he is magnified, that he is now made greater. She has a better understanding in this moment than any moment prior to this, that God is great. So in her soul, in her very being, God has revealed himself to her and allowed her to understand a little bit better about how great he is. She also declares that her spirit rejoices in God, that she is overwhelmed with joy at the thought of this happening. It's like that song we sang this morning, right? Joy to the world, joy, unspeakable joy. An overflowing well, this joy sprang up from within her and did not let her go. This is what the Christmas story should stir up in us. This fulfillment of God, these promises that as, as Jesus Christ comes, and, and I'm going to let the other guys take it where this is going, but the fact that God's promise would be fulfilled in this moment where God would take on flesh, that alone is worthy of Praise. Because we know that if he's fulfilled that promise, he's going to finish the story. Because that's the most miraculous thing that ever happened. Sure, he rose from the dead. Other people did too. But the most miraculous thing is when God takes on flesh and he is a baby. That's a miracle. What a beautiful time for us to spend with God in the the quiet of our days. Meditating. Meditating and focusing on this incredible promise that's been fulfilled. To meditate on the faithfulness of God as he has delivered us from our bondage of sin through the fulfillment of these promises. If you're parents, what a wonderful opportunity it is right now in this season to focus your children's attention on Jesus. They can relate to a baby. One of the things we've been doing is, we've been referring to every baby that we come across as, Baby name. So, our nephew, Baby Scott, who's got the little bump on his eye this morning, we've been saying, hey, look, this is Baby Scott. Last night we got to hang out with the Blunts and we were, Baby Elliot. Like We're referring to everybody as Baby because I know that if we can communicate that Jesus Christ was once a baby, that God came in flesh, maybe this would help him understand the gospel. You get to focus your attention on that. Instead of, what a lot of us grew up focusing on. And I, look, I get it; it's hard, right? I still get excited about getting presents. You ought to see my list. Like I, I make like a, a, it's like two pages, a Word document, not an Excel spreadsheet, but a Word document, where I just go through like you know little things here and there, like big things, small things, and everything in between. I like to get gifts, but I'd much rather communicate the fact that this gift is just a symbol of something that's much greater. That's why we do this. Church, let's commit this Advent to meditating on how we have seen God display his greatness in all that Christmas is intended to be. So that our souls would magnify the Lord, so that we would grow deeper in our understanding of just how great God is, and that we would respond with rejoicing in our spirits. As Mary progresses in her song of worship, she declares what it is about God that leads her to to respond this way, this expression of praise. She begins with what God has done for her. In verse 47, she refers to God as her Savior. That's significant. Mary recognized her need for a Savior and the fact that he was coming. She knew that the Messiah was intended for her as well. She realized that God, what she say, looked on her humble estate. Another word for that is despicable. Humble kind of softens it up a little bit. What she's saying there is, he has looked down on me, a lowly, unknown, otherwise very unimportant teenage girl. He looked down on me. He saw my humble estate. And he has sent me a savior. He has extended her immeasurable grace in this child that she would carry in her body. Verse 48, she says that he blessed her. The almighty God, the God who is all powerful, able to do anything that he wants to do, had done great things for her. And I love this picture that we see here, where you have Elizabeth and Mary. And where is God? He's with a, a woman who was once barren, old in age, that could not bear a child. And she, she refers to her, to herself when, when she says that she's going to bear a child as, as one who, she's going to, it's like this feeling of like, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a woman, I don't know. Like I'm not, like all these other women, they look at me and I haven't born a child and, and like all the feelings that go into that. And God fulfilled that. Like he, he gave her that. We don't all get that. But he looked at the lowly and he was there. He's not, he's not focused on the wealthy. He's not focused on the powerful. He's there with Elizabeth and Mary, sends his angel to them. And you see the Holy Spirit at work as the, the baby leaps in Elizabeth's womb. And, and the Holy Spirit comes and he, he fills Elizabeth. From that moment on, for generation throughout generations, Mary would be called blessed. I mean, we still talk about her today. She's, she's a big deal, right? Not because of anything that she had within her, but what God gave her. That's that's the big deal. I'm sure, I have, I'm pretty confident Mary was a very special mother. But what made her most special was the fact that she bore the Son of God in her womb. That God chose her. It wasn't because of her merit. It wasn't because of her holiness. God said, I see you little unknown, unimportant teenage girl. I've chosen you to bear my son, to bear the Savior of God of the world. I want you to think about what God has done for you. What has God done for you? Think about just this past year. What has God done for you this past year? For some of us, we've had big moments. We've had weddings. Weddings. We've had a lot of weddings. We've also had a lot of babies. So, this big moment, right? Some of us may have had career changes. Some of us may have had restored relationships. Some of us have, have been delivered from something medically, have overcome something. Like, God's allowed that to happen. Some of us may look over the past 12 months and maybe you don't feel like God's done a lot for you. I want to encourage you this morning. When you get to Christmas, you get to see the greatest thing that God will ever do for you. So if the last 12 months have been hard for you, and you can't say that I've had something great like a wedding or a child or anything like that, Jesus Christ is still King. He's still here. He came in the form of a baby. And the fulfillment of, of every promise God had made, still happens. So you know what? Remind yourself of that. Cling to that if that's where you are this year. For the rest of you, don't forget what God has done for you. Don't forget that. Because he's blessed you. Mary then moves to praising God, not just for what he's done for her, but then she thinks about his character, who he actually is. Verse 49, she says that he is holy. So, Reflecting on her despicable, lowly estate, she recognized God as holy, as as righteous. And what we see in Scripture is that God is perfect. He is a perfect God who requires his creation to be perfect as he is perfect. And at the same time that he is holy, he's merciful. She says that at the same time that, that that those who would fearfully commit themselves to submitting to God from generation to generation, they will receive mercy. She recognizes God's strength in verse 51. She says that God had displayed his power in the working of salvation for all of man as she, a virgin, would give birth to God in the flesh. That Emmanuel was there. This power would be further displayed in how God would would use that child to completely turn the world upside down. In verse 51, she said, he scatters the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. The Jewish religious elite, those who were very proud and rich in their theology, would be confounded in the fact that this promised Messiah was going to be born this way, into this family, not one of their pure bloodlines that's just sitting there saying, oh, we're, we're the best. But it's this unknown girl and this carpenter, Joseph, that, that God would use to raise the, that child. She said he brings down the mighty and exalts the humble. And we we can point to many places in Scripture, but I'm going to borrow from one where you can see the fulfillment of prophecy again. Just like David, when God took that humble shepherd boy and he raised him up to become king, one like David has come. One like David, a little boy born in a manger, born to a 14, 15 year old girl and a very humble carpenter that she's betrothed to would raise him up. God would raise him up to be king. Only this time, what have we seen in prophecy? His kingdom will never end. Of his government, there shall be no end. We will have peace forever. It won't be temporary In verse 53 she said that he fills the hungry with good things and sends the rich away empty. This isn't talking about food. This isn't talking about the, like the physical, but the spiritual. What this is saying is that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. And those who are rich and and think about how they have all of these things that they have to offer God, they will be turned away empty-handed. They will realize when they come into the presence of this king that's coming into the world, that they really have nothing. There is no wealth there. And I love verses 54 through 55. As she concludes this song of praise, she says, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. She's recalling the faithfulness of God. She's remembering. She remembers Genesis 3.15. She remembers Genesis 12 when God made that covenantal promise to Abraham. She's thinking back and reflecting on all of the years of her ancestors waiting in anticipation. Sure, she wasn't there from the beginning, but this has been passed on from generation to generation, hoping, waiting. When is he coming? Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. God is faithful to do what he says he is going to do. He is powerful to accomplish whatever he says he is going to do. And so we can have confidence that all of the promises of God will be fulfilled. Why do I say that? I want you to think back to that thing. Think back to that thing that, that you want more than anything else in the world. I would bet that for most of us, whatever that thing is, it hasn't been promised to you. And that's the difference between a wish and hope. For those of us who are Christians, our hope is built on the promises of God. We may really have a strong desire for something. But we're not guaranteed to receive that thing. We, we go to God and we say, we, hey, God, this, these are the desires of my heart, and I'm confident that he will align your heart. If you would submit to him, your heart's desires would be his for you. But the difference between a wish and hope is that thing that God has promised. And what God has promised is that one day we would have Emmanuel again that God would be with us once more. That's the second advent, the second coming of Christ. Look with me in Revelation chapter 21. This vision that the beloved disciple John had, starting in verse 1, he said, Then I saw a new heaven, And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. O come, O come, Emmanuel. His dwelling place will be with us. And we'll, this morning we're gonna sing that song. That's gonna be the first song in our in our as we respond in worship, for those of you who are new or maybe not familiar why we do things the way we do things here at Sulphur Community, we do a couple songs after our service because the, the point of that is we want to reflect on what we have seen from His Word and respond, just like Mary did, with praise. That's why it's not like some of you may come from a traditional, like, one song, let's get out of here, I surrender all, let's go. That's not why we do that. We do, we do two songs and respond to what we've seen in God's Word. When you sing this morning, O come, O come, Emmanuel, I want you to think of two things. I want you to think of what that would have meant for this girl, Mary. What that means for her and for all of her ancestors, for all of Israel, for them to sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. What did that mean for them? And now, reflecting on the fact that he has indeed come, think about how he will come again and yearn for that. Ask God to change your desire that that would be the greatest thing in this world that you would want. We've titled this series, A Light Has Dawned. And when you get into the lyrics of this song, you're going to see that death's dark shadows have been put to flight. A light has dawned, and the gloomy clouds of night have been dispersed. So when we sing this morning, I I hope that you're, you're responding in praise to the faithfulness of God. That's the big picture here, that God is faithful. He has shown that he will keep his promises. He has shown that he is powerful enough to keep his promises, even in the most miraculous of ways, so we can move forward in confidence, in the assurance of things hoped for, not wished for, but hoped for, built on the promises of God that we will one day be with our King face to face, that he will come again. So we celebrate that every Christmas. The first and the second Advent. So let's praise God in remembrance of his faithfulness and remain confident as we walk in faith towards that promise that will be fulfilled one day. There's a second part of that at the very end in verse eight. There's another promise. It said, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. If you've heard me this morning, you've heard that God will fulfill his promises and that he is powerful enough to do that, that God is holy. If you've not trusted in Christ, if you've not seen this story of this baby who is God in flesh, who would grow up to be a man, who is 100% God, 100% man, 200% awesome, that he would go to the cross to pay the penalty that we all deserve, all of us. If you have ever lied in this room, you are in that category. There's a bunch of other things listed, but we can all just start with that one because I'm confident that every one of us have lied. Whether it's to get out of trouble, whether it's to make ourselves look better, we have all done it. If that's you this morning, I want you to know that you're not alone. Because God looked on the lowly estate of Mary. She was sinful. I am a sinful woman being. I rebel against God. These things that are listed here, I'm guilty of them. But I've trusted in what Christ did on my behalf for salvation. I want to remind you that God is also merciful. If you fear him, if you submit to him, if you trust in Christ, if you call out to him this morning and say, God, I I don't believe all that stuff, but I at least recognize right now that that's me. Ask God to change your heart. Cry out to him. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning thanking you for this season of Christmas. Thank you for this holiday that that your church gets to stretch out into like a 25-day thing. And let each day for us, Father, let, let each day be one where we get to focus intentionally even if just for a moment, on what you have done, on who you are. Father, let us be like Mary as we reflect on what you've done for us. Father, how you have bought us back, how you have sacrificed your son so that we might be reconciled to you, that we might be able to have a right relationship with you despite everything that we've ever done, to rebel, to be disobedient towards you. Father, also remind us of your faithfulness. For those of us who need hope right now, Father, we pray that you would remind us of your faithfulness. This promise that was kept and fulfilled shows us that you are a faithful God. Fill us with the hope of the second coming of our King, whose reign will never end, who will wipe away every tear, who will eliminate death, who will take care of any mourning that we would have, Father, this Christmas, may we magnify you. And may our spirits rejoice in you, our God, our Savior. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.